Welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we pick the minds of top leaders in the data space so you can learn what are their secrets and how they got to where they are. With them, we discuss things like data analytics strategy, how to build, engage, and manage teams, how to deal with organizational politics, how to engage stakeholders, and much, much more. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. I hope that you are having a wonderful week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Ian Opperman. He's the chief data scientist at the New South Wales Department of Customer Service based in Sydney, Australia. Ian is an extremely knowledgeable and influential leader, and he is also very kind, very humble, very down to earth. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with him through his experiences both in Australia and overseas. And he's also had a very interesting path through research, industry, and entrepreneurship, well, and then government. A lot, a lot of lessons here. I had a blast speaking with him. This is a podcast that shows how much, or in Ian's story, you can see how much impact people from a very technical background can have if they keep their technical roots and specialty and develop more businessy and more soft skills and have the two running side by side. It really highlights the impact of this very powerful combination. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Here's a conversation with Ian. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Ian. Ian, thank you so much for making the time. I am so excited to be speaking with you. How are you doing? Thanks, Felipe. Great to be here. I'm doing pretty well for a Thursday afternoon. Good. Thank you. Ian, to kick us off, can you tell us about how you got started in the world of data? What was the first application or first project or how did you discover it? That's a really interesting question and something I've been asking myself for a little while. My background is actually telecoms and telecommunications. And after spending a lot of time thinking about moving bits around, I found myself working for a big telco called uh, Nokia Networks which is the part of Nokia, which is still alive and doing well. And I was put in charge of the planning and optimization groups. We made tools to plan and optimize mobile networks. And in the world of GSM, we used physics to think about, to essentially identify where signals propagate. And with GSM, so 2G, if you've got coverage, you've got capacity. When 3G came along, that wasn't quite true anymore. And we were dealing with different levels of data rate, different capacities for different service types with different levels of coverage. So we realized that in really complex environments, and Indonesia was a place we were looking to roll out and test these and optimize these mobile networks, we realized that we, our physics, our, our parametric models of the world were just not good enough. So we'd deploy initially based on planning and traditional approaches, but then we'd suck all the data in and we'd actually optimize the network based on all the data we pulled in about all the phone calls and the drop rates and so on. And over time, we did less and less physics and more and more data driven modeling. And I think that was really the first time that we switched or I switched from being well, thinking of the world in terms of physics and equations to actually thinking of the world as data driven. And in fact, data being a way of seeing all the complex interactions in the world around us. And since then, it's just become more and more data focused. That's incredible. And I saw in your background that obviously the passion for data is very strong in your background and through your career. I'll definitely ask you about that. But from the telco perspective, I saw that you've been involved in the next generation of mobile broadband. Obviously, 4G's here, 5G's being rolled out. You've been involved in what would be 6G. Is that right? And what is that looking like? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Finland decided last year that it's time to start the next big wave of research around mobile communications. And we've kind of got ourselves into a habit of having a bit like Moore's Law, a new G every approximately 10 years. So 3G was the first G we called a G, then 4G, and then 5G. 5G comes out officially next year in 2020. So the Finns are looking towards 2030 and the technologies that really need to respond to some of the big societal and environmental and technological trends. So it's interesting. When you think about what 6G needs to be, we looked at that from the perspective of what's 5G doing? It used to be about clock speeds or headline data rates, so much like computers, we used to talk about clock speeds. Now we talk about the bits per second that someone will achieve, and that's great, but that's no longer really the main game anymore. It's now about more places that you can get those high data rates, so it's coverage and capacity. But we're also mm-hmm. when we're thinking about uses of 5G for automation and uses of 5G for robotics and so on, there's a reliability that signal has to get through if you're controlling an autonomous vehicle it has to get through within a very well-defined period of time so we talk about latency we talk about reliability and these different dimensions of capacity and coverage reliability and latency are not exactly mutually exclusive but you'd need to really optimize them differently to the way you would optimize a just a coverage and capacity based network so when we're thinking about where 5G will go, looking at the technological trends and where we think it will run out of steam, we then look at the world of 2030 for the world of 6G. We're looking at an an aging, growing, urbanizing population, more reliant on digital services. We're looking at a changed climate, whatever the motivation, whatever, whatever the cause is, we're still looking at a changed climate. We're looking at changed ability to grow crops. And we're looking at the need to really increase productivity, not just to address that growing, aging population, not just address the changed climate we live in, but we're talking about an extra billion people on the planet between now and 2030. So we're also looking at an aging population with more people being retired compared to working. And at the same time as all of that, we're looking at a population that's expecting a higher quality of life, more personalized services. So within all of that, we've got some pretty big productivity challenges, some pretty big opportunities for delivery of digital services. And we know we have to get more of that signal out in a reliable way to more parts of the farming community or the aquaculture community or the manufacturing community in order to really drive those productivity step changes. So what we're really doing is looking at what we think the world will need in 2030, the trajectory of 5G, and the difference between the two is the response that the technology of 6G will have to address. Amazing. It would be such a challenge and so interesting to be looking that far ahead. So yeah, thank you for doing that work because it is, it is so important and something that we'll all get to depend on. There's an interesting kicker to that though. 2030 is not the end of the story because of course, if we think about and all of the trends I just talked about, they're actually they're accelerating trends, the population mm-hmm. growth, the aging component. So 2030 is actually just the next step on the highway to 2040, 2050. So we're also thinking about 6G as being a big inflection point for 7G and for 8G and whatever comes after that. And obviously, by then, the hunger for bandwidth is going to be amazing. You know, we're going to have virtual reality in the home. And oh, it's just, I can't even imagine the world then. So that's, that's incredible. Could you give us an overview of your professional background and how you got to where you are today? So I did an undergraduate degree in engineering, electrical engineering, with a focus on communications, did a degree in science and went out to the world to get a job. I went out to the world and got a job and actually found it just a little bit boring. Came back, 
the university and did a PhD in telecommunications. And we were thinking about a technology that would underpin 3G at the time. We did a PhD and at the end of that, decided to start a company. I was essentially told that the work of my nice. PhD was not practical. And I was determined to demonstrate that it wasn't just good theoretical work, but I could actually do something with it. So I started the company, got into a position where I was consulting to a lot of different companies around the world. It was the great spectrum auction days. So in the, the late 90s, there was lots of money flowing. The company grew and I wound up in a situation where we were building the world's first 3G planning tool and we were doing it as an assistance to do consulting work. But I thought, why not make that into a real product? How hard can it be? Turned out to be very hard. Company grew. Uh, we lived through the dot-com boom and bust. Not that we were a dot-com, but we lived through the boom and bust and wow. was then looking at what do I do next? And I had worked as a postdoc in Finland at the Center for Wireless Communications. They offered me a job. They were working on this crazy new technology called 4G. So I thought that'll be great. I'll go and work for them. That's a center which is 160 kilometers south of the Arctic Circle in Finland. Uh -huh. There are 100 researchers there being the leading edge to, in fact, Nokia's really substantial R&D team there. There were almost 5,000 people bringing 3G to life. So we were looking at 4G, wound up working for Nokia, worked my way through from running those product lines for planning and optimization tools, then into technology partnering, then into sales partnering. And pretty soon I was in a coin-operated sales role, which was just a little bit too far for me. I'd met, a, met someone in Australia who had dragged off to Finland. At some point after eight years, she said, I need to move home. Uh, if you want to stay married, you need to move as well. Came back to Australia to run the ICT center at CSIRO, which was amazing. People working on robotics, on e-health, on wide-scale sensor networks, on information security. Did that for four or five years, including standing up a flagship. Went and worked in financial data markets for a while and was really starting to see the power of data and science brought together. Worked for a little company down in Sydney who took every transaction of every financial market, every microsecond of every day and served it up as a, a feed for algorithmic traders. Uh, great job from a technological perspective, not so good for the uh, personal satisfaction, and then wound mm -hmm. up ultimately uh, helping to establish the New South Wales Data Analytics Center and becoming the first ever New South Wales Chief Data Scientist. Amazing, amazing. And what have been some of the major challenges in your current role since you started the new south wales data analytics center the dac turned four just a couple of weeks ago we originally established as a really strong statement of intention that data would be used to address wicked policy challenges so problems that are subtle and complex and ultimately have people's behavior at their heart we got started with a strong mandate we had legislation coming that said agencies had to share data with us and we had a really passionate minister behind us but we didn't have any data we didn't have any data scientists we didn't have any compute we didn't have any budget we had 10 problems endorsed by new south wales cabinet and we had a mandate to get going. So the early days were really very interesting. They felt a lot like a startup. What we did was we crowdsourced a lot of problems. And the problems we were dealing with were transport optimization or fire and rescue response times at the sort of more interesting data science end through to genuinely wicked challenges around domestic and family violence and looking at helping to reform the out-of-home care system where children are identified at risk of significant harm. They're taken away from their families and they're put into some sort of protective environment. We've looked at that broad spectrum of challenges through the lens of understanding the journey of a child, a family, a household, a fire truck, a community through the lens of data, reframing the conversation around outcomes. What is it we're trying to achieve? 
and what is it that we could measure to indicate whether we're approaching those outcomes, and then identifying the factors of risk that lead to either the outcomes that we want or the outcomes that the adverse outcomes, and looking at those modifiable factors, modifiable factors of risk. It started to work. We drew a lot on the local innovation community, so the universities around us, the CSIRO, a whole range of people who really cared about these problems and really welcoming the opportunity to get stuck into helping. And then over time, as we built capability, we brought more of that in-house. We started to tackle, to be fair, we started to tackle the really sensitive problems more internally than externally. But along the way, we built up a lot of goodwill with the agencies we worked with, built up a great network of collaborators in local industry and local innovation who really wanted to work with us. And we helped to shape the Master of Data Science course at a local university, UTS, and they helped to shape us in terms of the skills and capabilities that came along. So we had a really great symbiotic relationship. Four years on, we have some parts of government who, who just can't live without us, some parts who see us as a valued partner, and, and some who are still testing really what value we can add to them. And that reflects the range of problems we work on. And also the size of the government and the scale of the transformation that or the improvements that can be driven from data. It's such a big problem space. How did you pick which areas to focus on first? We were very fortunate early on that New South Wales Cabinet gave us the problems to work on. So I mentioned that when we started, when we really had no resources, we had 10 problems endorsed by Cabinet. In fact, there were nine that were put to Cabinet and 10 came back. So uh-huh. we were being directed at pretty high level. Over time, we have evolved in terms of not just working strictly with either the Premier's priorities or New South Wales Cabinet, but individual ministers and sometimes individual agencies come to us with challenges. And there are a range of challenges we've looked at within was finance services and innovation or transport or industry that they didn't have the capability at the time themselves. And so we worked with them, helped shape the problem, helped them solve the problem. In some cases we would lead, in some cases we'd support, but all with the intention of upskilling. We're a relatively modest team in terms of size. We're 45 people at the moment, and there's no way we can do all of the analytical work for government. So the intention was always to help people on their own journey and essentially teach people to fish if they if they really needed upskilling, or in some cases just stretch their ambitions a little around the art of the possible. We have seen some agencies just really take off. Transport is the poster child of getting it right in New South Wales. They have really lit up to the journey of data analytics. And there are other areas that we're still doing that capability building. And there are other spaces which have more traditional statistical approaches who are becoming more aware of what's possible if they evolve from straight statistics to statistics and data science or a blend of of those two. What's made transport successful or particularly successful in this space? First of all, uh, some really good problems in really good in the sense of dimensionality of the data space and the dimensionality of the problem space are quite well suited. So optimizing the train timetable, for example, is something that you could do with 10 or 15 data sets. They also have incredible data through the tap-on, tap-off Opal card data. That is, it's unbelievably good in terms of coverage and quality and reliability. And they know that they're in a business which is quite dependent on shaving efficiencies or driving efficiencies into the system. There's a lot of infrastructure that they move around. And so it's worth the effort to really put data analytics to work. And then finally, they've got some great leadership. They have wanted to be data-driven. They wanted to be all about the passenger and personalization of travel for the passenger. So they've got all the right ingredients. Very nice. What skills do you think have most helped you in this role that you've been doing for the last four years? Uh, If you could see me, I'm smiling. I think sense of humor is probably number one. (laughs) 
the ability to look at impossible challenges square in the eye and not blink, the ability to help other people look at impossible challenges square in the eye and not blink, and then to take a real big challenge and start to decompose it into a data problem and get to the point where you've got something that you could actually drive a proof of concept and then rebuild from that proof of concept back up to that that outcome. The ability to do that decomposition backwards and forwards, top down, bottom up, and then tell the story of how the proof of concept really is going to speak to the outcome that people actually really want. So a little bit of analytical capability, a little bit of storytelling, quite a bit of resilience and a sense of humor. Where do those skills start for you? Or when would you say that you started developing those skills in your professional life? And was there anything in particular that tested, well, any of those, but maybe the resilience or the decomposition? Did you have any significant tests before this role? I guess there were a couple of different dimensions. So back in Finland, working for Nokia, we would develop optimization tools for Nokia networks. And our great ambition was to be able to develop those same tools for other networks, Siemens networks, or at the time, Alcatel Lucent networks. We had one of our sales guys in Russia coming back to us really excited saying he'd sold an optimization offering into Russia, which was a market we were really trying to win in. And we said, great, Lev, that's fantastic. And he came back and said, ah, but there's one thing, it's not for a Nokia network. And we said, what? (laughs) We realized it was for a different network that we didn't know how to optimize. So not wanting to lose face and really wanting to look after this valuable customer, this potential new customer for us, we made it work. And we thought what something was really genuinely impossible. We sat down and said, this has to work. Let's find a way to do it. And flipping it from it can't to we must find a way and a relatively tight time frame was really quite transformational in terms of what we started to believe we could do. Fast forward a little bit, working at CSRO. CSRO guys do amazing stuff. They literally do rocket science and space science. The sorts of problems that they tackled ranged from putting backpacks on bees, honeybees, putting little self-powered wow. backpacks on bees so you could follow them around. So you had the internet of bees through to wow. changing the focal array plane for the square kilometer array telescope and the Parkes telescope, changing it from essentially a one pixel system to a 100 pixel system by doing something which was considered to be impossible, putting these checkerboard arrays on and actually facilitating the development of the world's most powerful telescope, the square kilometer array. There's nothing that these guys wouldn't tackle. So coming then into government, You think if the ideas or the suggestions or the problems are only half as crazy as what the CSRO guys were prepared to tackle and win on, then it's got to be possible. I guess the, the final aspect was one about data that kept coming up within the CSRO. There's a fundamental question about whether or not we can fully understand anything, whether or not we can fully get to the bottom of anything. And one thing the astronomers and also the folks working with the equivalent of the Large Hadron Colliders in Australia know that if you keep looking deeper, you keep finding more data. And whenever we think we've got to the bottom, if you push harder, smash harder, or look further, you see more data. So the fundamental premise that any data set brings a different perspective on the problems we're looking at. And so variety of data is really important. And that any system is amenable, any system, any process, any environment, any ecosystem is actually amenable to being illuminated through data if you look hard enough is something that really is a fundamental toolkit to tackle any problem. And sometimes a slightly crazy idea, which you can then find a reasonably sensible idea underneath, is actually a great way to start to tackle these wicked challenges. 
Very nice. How do you impart decomposition of a large problem and being able to break it down into small pieces and then move forward with a prototype of one of the pieces to prove value and get momentum? How do you pass that on to your team? So we typically do what we call an ideation workshop, which some people would call it design thinking. Some people would call it human-centric thinking. But we always start out with trying to understand what people actually want. And very often, that's a difficult thing to articulate. The approach we took early on, and to some extent still do, but early on it was, what are the questions, if you had access to any data set you could possibly imagine, what question would you ask of the data which helps you understand the problem differently, identify different factors of risk that lead to certain outcomes, allow you to do what-if scenario analysis, or evaluate the effectiveness of your new service type, your new intervention, your new policy. And we would just push and push and push on that question until we got what we thought was the highest possible ordered question and then start to use decomposition. So once upon a time, sitting with a commissioner of fire and rescue, and it was project number one, and I walked in and saw the commissioner. And this is a man who's had 30 years experience being a frontline firefighter and is the first ever frontline firefighter to become commissioner. I walked in and said, commissioner, congratulations, you've got a project with the DAC. He said, who are you? What's the DAC and how did I get a project with you? And I thought, oh dear, this is not going well. The one advantage of having project endorsed by New South Wales Cabinet is that we have to do something. And Mm. sitting there, we said, we're not going to waste each other's time. Let's try and find something you really care about. We talked about a range of different issues, but ultimately when we kept lifting the question, one of his concerns was about the ongoing role of fire and rescue. If you were designed fire and rescue today, it wouldn't necessarily look like people sitting in a fixed location waiting for an alarm, get dressed, roll the truck out. You might really do things differently. So his question was really about an existential question about the sustainability of the model of fire and rescue in the future. So we had something he cared about. We also knew as a proof of concept that at the time, 48,000 automatic fire alarms went off in New South Wales of the year that we were doing the project. By law, fire and rescue must respond, and typically they send two trucks. That's 96,000 truck rolls with lights and sirens, typically in a busy city, to respond to automatic fire alarms. And they know that 97% of them either a mechanical failure, which is actually quite a small percentage, or someone burning toast, but they have to respond. And if they don't see smoke or smell smoke and see flames, there's always the temptation of not following absolutely strict protocol and potentially putting themselves at risk. And this is something that is a really immediate problem, a very human problem that the commissioner cared about, which also rolled up to this bigger issue of the sustainability of fire and rescue going forward, because people really do get injured when they step into that situation that 3% of automatic fire alarms, which are early stage real fires. So we built a predictor. We went to a great deal of trouble to think about all the different data sets we could possibly bring to bear. So we knew we had panel data and we had the normal things that would indicate a fire, but we also knew that we had the location of the building, we had the time of building use, we had time of day, day of week, week of month, month of year, so we had some seasonality in there. We had air quality information, we had pollen count, we had weather information, we had lightning strike, we had cycles of the moon, and we had social media. So we said, all of this, we're going to try and use all of this to develop a predictor. And we did. We used a lot of really motivated university master's students in a series of directed hackathons, so we call it directed ideation, where we start with lots mm. of ideas, little teams, and get down to a small number of, of ideas being worked on by larger teams. And we developed a predictor, which was still not as accurate as it needed to be, but at least demonstrated that each and every one of those data sets, except one, each and every one of those data sets was actually indicative of real alarm, false alarm, or someone burning tape. That is a fantastic example. Hats off, end-to-end, extremely well done. I love the use of the focused hackathon, obviously external data sets, convincing the commissioner. Uh, awesome. 
Really Interesting. Interesting. I mentioned that one of the data sets really played no role in the predictor. It turns out that social media has no impact because people don't take photos and tweet before the fire and rescue crew arrive. They typically get there within seven minutes. People send their tweets after fire and rescue arrive. All the other data sets were actually useful in the predictor. So interesting. That is amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I wanted to ask you about the fact that after your PhD, you went back and did further study in the business area. You did an MBA and then you did the director's course. What was the benefit of that further study? And would you recommend it to other people that have very technical backgrounds? So a little bit of catharsis here. So I ran my own company for six years and I was too busy to do a management degree. And I was making decisions based on what I'd known about supervising PhD students and now trying to extrapolate that to employees, what I knew about research projects and delivering on those, trying to extrapolate that to company interests. After six years of running my own company, I had learned a lot. Yes. I moved to Finland, worked at the research center for a while, then moved across to work for Nokia. And when I was at the research center, I had a bit of time on my hands. So I thought, why not? Why not do MBA? And so I enrolled in an MBA, which is the closest university to where I was living, which was I was in Finland, closest university that spoke English that I could go to was in uh, the UK, University of London, and started doing the course and reading the material and going, in particular, the case studies and saying to myself, oh, really? That was an option. I could have done that. Oh, really? <laughs> this is how other people address these challenges. It's a bit of a double-edged sword. If I tried to do the MBA whilst running my company, I would have been really busy running the company and not necessarily giving it full attention. And I also didn't have the life experience. If I'd really put that much time and effort and focus into the MBA whilst running a company, I think I would have done a much better job running the company. And it probably, we did live through the dot-com boom and bust. We, we lived for two more years until we finally sold out two years after dot-com boom. So it was, it was tough going, but it would have been really useful to have that, first of all, some experience and then do the MBA. So I think that's the right way to do it. I have to tell you, I learned a lot from doing the MBA and looking back at my earlier self and thinking, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. <laughs> the, the company director's course was really useful. The one really important thing about the company director's course is about governance and governance in Australian context in particular, but the importance of governance and probity and all of the aspects of governance, which you need to operate in the company situation. There is always the temptation to replace governance with trust. I trust that things are running well. I trust the people I work with. I trust a whole lot of things. And yes, you should trust systems and processes and people, but without good governance, governance cannot replace trust. So having good governance is an essential part of smooth operation of a company. So it's, if you like, a higher order consideration in some respects, but it's a fundamental to good operation. So it's been quite complementary. I don't think an MBA is for everybody. I don't think technical people should just do it for the sake of it. I've got some former PhD students who I recommended do some management courses as opposed to doing an MBA. But if you're prepared to commit the time, and now these days in particular, the money for an MBA, they can be very rewarding, but it really is worth having some real world experience it's not an academic exercise and would your recommendation for people of whether to do an mba or not what would you base that that advice on yeah usually what would you base that recommendation on so it really is whether or not you are genuinely seeking a career transition over time. So I mentioned, I'm thinking of one former PhD student in particular who works in Germany. So PhD in Finland with me and then working in Germany. He wants to stay technical and that's his real passion. He has been pushed towards the management chain a few times and now manages a team. But when he's been pushed to running larger teams and not doing technical hands-on work, not being an individual contributor, his strong preference is to stay as an individual contributor. And that can be quite career limiting. And in 
in particular in Australia, there are not many senior technical pathways that you can develop. Mm. So my advice is that if you really want to make the transition, an MBA is an important complementary skill set. It does require you to use different mental aspects as opposed to what you might pick up doing engineering or data science, but it really helps round out experience and capability and coupled with a technical degree, it's really very powerful. But if that's not you and if you feel that that's really not where you want to go, at least understanding some of the fundamentals of management and some of the fundamentals of seeing the bigger non-technical picture is extraordinarily useful to help you be a better technical person and operate more meaningfully, in particular, over the long term in a technical role. That is a great answer. <laughs> I could not agree more. What type of challenges are occupying your mind at the moment and your time? What are the things, obviously, whatever you can tell us, but the things that you're thinking about right now? So from a, an immediate work front, we're looking at customer journeys and New South Wales has created the customer service cluster and the customer service cluster is all about understanding that journey and wrapping services around child, family, household, as opposed to wrapping people around government. So just as it's easy to get a driver's license or compulsory third-party insurance, we're looking at some of the more complex life journeys, birth of a child, death of a loved one, getting a job, but also thinking about some of those more extreme journeys, such as someone heading towards being identified at risk of significant harm and going into out-of-home care. So thinking about that journey of child, family, household, community, and thinking about how we would build the evidential data sets which help us understand that journey in great specificity and great granularity using de-identified data and also reframing those conversations in terms of outcomes, identifying adverse outcomes and the factors of risk that lead to them and positive outcomes and the factors that lead to them, thinking about how we redesign services and policies to achieve those and being very transparent about what we're trying to achieve and also what we're measuring and then closing the loop by continually updating the data sets, refreshing so we can do evaluation of the effectiveness of those different policy or service interventions. That's the day job. And we're looking at more and more of those journeys. And that's the whole reason that the customer service cluster has been established. The bigger problem is privacy preserving data sharing. And mm. I'm surprised it's taken this long in the conversation before I've said it. My team play privacy preserving bingo with me. And if I get through more than a couple of minutes without saying it, they'll call out the issue here is that when we link de-identified data sets together, we strip out name and address and such things. The question is whether or not you could still reasonably re-identify an individual. And legislation is always, in most jurisdictions, is framed around that reasonable likelihood of re-identification. In New South Wales, it's living or dead. You've still got wow. privacy rights if you've been dead for up to 30 years. So the question is actually a subtle and complex one because reasonable, the reasonable test, I have heard it said that the only reasonable person to answer that reasonable test is a, a Supreme Court judge, which is not exactly the most efficient way of determining whether or not you've got personal information or not, personally identifiable information. So if I link my color, hair color together, they're both personal attributes. So you could say they have personal information, but if I link my color, hair color and say this is a sample from a population in Australia, it's not personally identifiable. But if I then start to link a whole range of other people-centric data fields together, and in particular, mm. if I link together what we call trajectories, so you went here, you went there, you went here, you went there mm. at this time, at this time, at this time, being able to uniquely identify de-identified individuals, so a unit record becomes very rapidly very possible. And so the question then is, under what circumstances can we identify how much personal information we have in the linked de-identified data set? What other data sets we must not link together in order to ensure that we are on the right side of reasonably re-identifiable? And can we create safer 
from a re-identification risk perspective, safer versions of a data set, of an important data set, so that more people could use it for more reasons while still protecting or reducing the risk of re-identification appropriately for those different uses and for those different people. So we've been looking at risk frameworks, including people and projects and data and settings and outputs, and trying to work out whether or not we can dial up and down in a quantified way the different levels of risk mitigation, depending on what data sets we've got and what context we're operating in. And that turns out to be a really tricky problem. We've been working under the banner of the Australian Computer Society, but we've been working with CSRO and Bureau of Statistics, Institute for Health and Welfare, Office of the Interim Data Commissioner, some household company names, every state and territory on the mainland, some privacy advocates, some good folks from the Data 61, really trying to chew this problem and try to identify, first of all, why people don't share data. And yes. despite the fact that mostly it's it's the voiced concern is privacy, mostly it's actually about sensitivity, seeing whether or not we can actually build a quantified measure for risk of re-identification, a personal information factor, see if we can really strip out what different aspects of sensitivity are and start to build governance or other frameworks around it so that we can say, all right, if we've got really high privacy or high levels of personal information, but it's not sensitive, these are the safeguards we put in place. Low levels of personal information, low sensitivity, that might be open data. High levels of sensitivity, but low levels of personal information, a different governance framework. And of course, if we've got high sensitivity, high levels of personal information, we do the full-blown ethics approvals and all of the systems and processes that people normally assume that they need to use for personal information. That is impressive. And it's such a tough area that just keeps tripping up so many people that are well-intentioned, that want to do something good for the community. And then suddenly it happens that by joining a couple of data sets, you can get a lot, a lot of understanding about the individual, who they are, where they live, so much information. So the fact that you guys are tackling this is so exciting. In the time that you've been working on this, what has surprised you the most? As in maybe something that was not expected or something that you guys have developed? What surprised you the most so, so far? So we've been running this exercise for about three years now, and we're also now linked up with the international standards community. And what has surprised me is just how subtle this problem actually is. The approach we've had, we're about to run workshop number 23, I think. This is the 23rd half-day workshop. Workshop number one, we said, why don't people share data? Surely it's just a technical problem. We'll have this sorted out by the end of this workshop. Every workshop has been almost exactly the same as that. But along mm -hmm. the way, we've developed some frameworks and models and the rules of the game are we come in, we call this the piñata, you can hit it as hard as you like, but you can't throw it away unless you've got a better idea. And that stops a whole lot of black hat behavior and has led to some really creative and innovative thinking of which we, we keep pushing out as these technical white papers under the banner of the Australian Computer Society. We did one in 2017, which said, we think the problem's in here. It is technical, it is regulatory, it is social, it's contextual, but ultimately it's about trust, but it's not worse than this, it's not worse than this, it's not worse than that, it's in here somewhere. Uh, 2018, it was, if we had a measure of personal information, this is how we'd start to build this risk frameworks. And now what we're trying to do is say, and this is what we think the personal information factor is, and this is what we think our measures of utility and such are. This problem was every single one of these workshops, I think we've nailed it. We've absolutely got it. Come in, we'll just get complete agreement from the group and we'll leave. And every single time people think of something else that we hadn't thought of. And this is after yeah. three years. And that's really frustrating. So we go in optimistic every workshop, come out feeling really flat and depressed, but at least we've moved the needle a little further. I mentioned standards. And data standards, I have to tell you, I don't often get to put those two words together without the people I'm talking to falling off their chairs or falling asleep. <laughs> but data standards are really starting to get interested in this space. I'm off to London next week 
to have a meeting of the group called JTC1. JTC1 is the Joint Technical Committee, a collaboration between the ISO, who make all sorts of standards for all sorts of yeah. things, and the IEC, who care about smart grids and smart devices and smart lighting. They've got a collaborative committee called Joint Technical Committee 1, been running for 30 years. We're meeting to take the next step in terms of bringing the international standards community to look at this problem. And that includes people from, typically people have heard of the 27,000 series standards, the cybersecurity ones, the ISO 27,000 gold standard for cyber, but also mm-hmm. the folks who developed SQL, the folks who developed the cloud computing standards, the folks who are looking at smart cities and artificial intelligence and blockchain are all interested in this question of whether or not we can identify how much personal information is in sets of linked de identified data sets and what you do with those linked de identified data sets from a risk framework perspective. So we're meeting in London and we've got incredible energy in this space because everybody either assumes that the data is not at all personal because it's de identified, you've stripped out name and address, or it's highly personal and you need to treat it as if it was nuclear fuel. There's no shade of grey in the middle. So this group have been working on this problem since November last year when Australia took this challenge to the international standards community and said, you know what, we think there's a problem here. We think that some of the work we've done with the risk frameworks such as 27,000 will be really helpful. Some of the tools we've developed for SQL and for cloud computing and information governance are applicable here, but there's still a problem we haven't addressed. So they're approaching it with real enthusiasm. So I'm very excited about that. Very justifiably so. That sounds incredibly exciting. I am going to be respectful of your time. So I'm only going to ask you two more questions. And these might be sort of maybe rapid fire questions. This first one, I am so curious for the answer. You've had such an amazing career so far. What would you say are you most proud of out of what you've done in your professional life? That's a great question. As part of my PhD, I developed a set of spreading sequences, which at one stage were being considered to be used in 3G communication. Spreading sequences, you take a bit, you spread it in frequency, and it propagates along with low probability of intercept, low probability of protection, but also allows you to do lots of multiplexing, so you get a lot more out of the channel. Now, if anyone's really bored at home, do a Google search for Opperman sequences, and you'll see them come up. I reached the height of research fame with these sequences. I was at a conference, and someone in that conference that I was chairing the session for referred to them as Opperman sequences and one other person in the audience recognized what he was talking about. So three people in the same room knew about the research that I'd done, one of whom was me. That is fame. (laughs) That is fame. (laughs) That's fame in the research community and I've been on a high about that ever since. If we manage to pull off this privacy-preserving data-sharing frameworks, that will replace the spreading sequences as the peak of my technical career. Yes, I completely understand. This is a huge challenge that we need. Uh, so the progress you guys are making is incredible. Thank you. One last question then. What is a piece of advice that you would like to leave the listeners with? The piece of advice is that the problems that we ultimately care about are human-centric problems. And despite working really hard on your discipline, working really hard to get technical capabilities and being the best you can in your discipline. A single discipline is typically not enough to solve a human-centric problem. We need to collaborate with a whole lot of other people, with a whole lot of other skills, because most of the problems we genuinely care about are complex and are subtle and have so many different dimensions to them. So embracing the fact that collaboration with all of those other disciplines is an essential part if we're ever going to tackle the really big problems facing society, facing humanity, facing the environment. Amazing. And that is a fantastic note to end on. Ian, thank you so much for sharing your journey, 
your insights, your experience, and uh, all the, the amazing progress that you're doing in such important areas and so relevant to all of our lives. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for the work that you do. I can't thank you enough for sharing all that. Thank you very much for having me on today. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.